In February 1966, Stuart Brand sat on a rooftop in San Francisco, looked out at the city skyline, and thought he could see the curve of the Earth's surface. Tripping on LSD, Brand realised, as he later put it, that if we ever got a photograph of the Earth from space, it would change people's perspective on everything. He thought that seeing an image of the whole Earth would help humans realise how connected they were and how much they had in common. Brand started lobbying NASA to release one, and in 1972 he got his wish. The image taken by the Apollo 17 crew, and known as the Blue Marble, was shared with the world. Against the pitch-black background of space, Earth is stained dark blue by the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, which surround the sand and green of Africa and the Middle East. The snow of Antarctica covers the base, and dashes of bright white cloud formations are splashed over the top. It's now one of the most recognisable photos ever taken. But without Stuart Brand's drug-induced trip, we may never have seen it. Fifty years later, is it time to overturn the ban on psychedelics? I'm John Prado. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, should psychedelic drugs be more easily available? In 2020, voters in Oregon approved a proposal that would allow people to take psilocybin, the psychedelic substance in magic mushrooms. It's a cautious approach. Users will be able to apply to go to a licensed facility and take the drug with the help of a trained supervisor. The evidence suggests that psychedelics have the potential to successfully treat mental health issues. Has Oregon hit on the best model? And will other states follow? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's the word in New York? I am well. I noted, along with many Americans interested in politics, that Justice Breyer will retire. So, of course, that starts this process in which President Biden will make an announcement of who he plans to appoint, which will inevitably be followed by much disagreement and conversation um, with different members of Congress. And so I'll be fascinated to see that play out. Yeah, I have some thoughts about that. But maybe we'll get to that in a minute. John, how are you doing? What did you make of that big news? Uh, I thought it was not unexpected. I spent uh, most of yesterday afternoon editing a piece by Steve Maisie, who's our Supreme Court correspondent. He's been on the show before. He heroically wrote about 1300 brilliant words about Justice Breyer's retirement in around 90 minutes. Um, It's the advantage of I guess, having been thinking about this stuff for a long time and being a brilliant and fluent writer, but he just basically sneezed out a lead note. I'm kind of in awe. Steve is absolutely great. I'd say I have views on this. I mean, I know this is Joe Biden fulfilling a campaign promise. You know, he did say that if there was a retirement on his watch, he'd put an African-American woman on the court. And I'm all for the court being diverse and reflecting America as it is now. 
And if you leave people to their own devices, very often they just hire people like them. And it's important to push against that. But I do think it's bizarre to say that the next member of the court has to be an African-American woman. I mean, that would be illegal uh, if he were hiring for most jobs in America to be that specific. And I also think, you know, the Democratic Party has to knit together a coalition that includes African-Americans, Hispanics, you know, working class whites, college educated whites. So even just as a matter of straight electoral politics, it seems like a very odd way to go about knitting that coalition together. Do you guys think I'm wrong? I don't think he's particularly concerned at this point about trying to win Republicans to his side. I think it's been pretty evident in the first year of his presidency that there's not that great a willingness to have the kind of bargaining that he hoped he might achieve with members of the other party. And then in terms of the Democrats, you know, I guess there might be some moderates who take issue with this. But politically, I think he wants to be able to show the left that he can deliver on one promise, any promise. And this is one where he has executive authority. And so it doesn't seem to me particularly surprising that he's trying to use it in this way. I agree. I think that, you know, black voters basically gave him the presidency. He won in North Carolina and then sort to victory after that. He promised on the campaign trail he would put a black woman on the court. None has been on the court before. There are a number of eminently qualified candidates, including Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who Steve also wrote about, Leandra Kruger, Tiffany Cunningham. These three women are more than qualified to sit on the court, and, and I don't have a problem with promising a groundbreaking appointment. If you want to hear more about Stephen Breyer's retirement, then do catch yesterday's episode of The Intelligence, where Steve talks about that and talks about what might happen next. Okay, let's move away from the Supreme Court. I suspect we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about that again in the coming weeks. John, this week we're talking about psychedelic drugs, and not just because they're interesting, but because in 2020, Oregon's voters changed the law on psychedelic drugs in that state in a ballot initiative. And you've been out to Oregon to report on this. Could you begin by just telling us what that law says and what it changes in practice? Sure. Well, there were actually two ballot initiatives. One of them deals with psychedelics as part of a broader shift in the law on drugs. And that is Oregon's voters overwhelmingly voted to decriminalize personal possession of all illegal drugs, including psychedelics. What that means is that if you are caught with a small amount of anything, you are given a $100 fine, and that can be voided if you go through a health screening that may send you to drug treatment or it may not send you to drug treatment, but either way, you won't go to prison for holding drugs. The more interesting one, the one that we're talking about today, is that they approved the legalization of psilocybin therapy. And psilocybin is the psychedelic compound that's found in magic mushrooms. As of early next year, if everything goes well, Oregonians will be able to apply to take it at a licensed facility with a trained facilitator who will watch them as they take it, will be there in case of any discomfort or stress, and will ideally help them integrate that experience into the rest of their lives. This is the promise of psilocybin therapy, psychedelic therapy more broadly, is that it's not just the experience of the drugs themselves. It also involves conversations afterward to help you integrate what you have undergone into the rest of your life and help you understand the experience you just went through. So now Americans who are interested in doing that have to go to retreats outside the United States. These are often quite expensive. As of next year, Oregonians will be able to do it in their own state. 
And you've written about this in this week's Economist. So who did you talk to and who have you got for us to listen to on the podcast? So I spoke to a number of people. The person that we're going to hear from right now is named Jesse Gould, who is a retired army ranger. He was involved in the Oregon proposal through his nonprofit Heroic Hearts Projects, which helps veterans suffering from PTSD access psychedelic treatment. And he set it up after going through the experience himself. Is I was an army ranger and I had three combat deployments to Afghanistan. When I got out of the military, I wanted to go right back and figure out what the next stage was, the next chapter. But around that time, I think sort of the normalcy of life as opposed to this high octane life was when some mental health issues really started to get worse and really started to come into focus of how much they're affecting my life. Depression, anxiety, alcoholism to cover it, just a general lack of happiness with my life and just making very risky decisions as well. So I was in this situation where I was doing everything right on the outside is all the green check marks, but on the inside, there's just this tremendous turmoil and nobody seemed to have the answers and nobody seemed to really even understand the trauma I was going through. Around the same time, just I guess the, the confluence of, of my life at that time, I heard about a psychedelic and I already had my own stigma. I had my own conceptions of psychedelics and had no interest, had ne- never tried it. It didn't self-identify, but for whatever reason, this psychedelic I heard about, ayahuasca, it just presented itself differently to me. And ayahuasca comes from the Amazonian region of South America. And, and so the next thing I know, I found myself on a, on a one-way plane to, to Peru to explore this almost as a last-ditch effort to get over whatever it was that was affecting me. And from the profound effects I had from ayahuasca and just seeing all these other amazing stories, it was readily apparent that there's something to it that was not being talked about, explored. And that was the start of Heroic Hearts Project. And so take me inside your brain, if you can, sort of before, during, and after your experience with ayahuasca. What did it feel like before? What did ayahuasca sort of release for you? And how did you integrate that experience into the rest of your life? The hard part about mental health in particular is that we just get so used to it. And then when you're in those bubbles, you can't see life outside of that. And that's what I always describe people with what depression is, is that you get to believe when it gets really bad and things just turn gray or bleak, it's almost hard to remember that the life outside of that or the view outside of that even existed. You're just so consumed and that's your brain. Like that's how it presents it. And so while I was in that, it was even hard. Like fortunately I've considered myself fortunate. I did see the red flags because for so many, we can just keep going on. Like everything's okay. Everything's okay. Cause it's, it's the, the frog and the, the slightly rising water. Right. And then next thing you know, it's boiling. And so a lot of this perspective that I'll speak about right now is actually reflection of afterwards of like, oh, I was actually pretty far down a bad path. Afterwards, uh, and especially the months after this ayahuasca experience where there was this immediate impact where one, it did feel like my brain was lighter. It just felt like it was functioning different. But then on the subsequent months, what I realized is how dysfunction my brain seemed to work. Like before on reflection, like in, in that immediate comparison, it seemed like my brain was made up of these warring states, these different phases of Jesse that just didn't get together, that just it wasn't a cohesive unit. Whereas afterwards, it was really the first time in memory that it seemed like the brain, my mind was, I am and I'm here to 
help myself <laughs> go forward and survive as opposed to the self-sabotaging and going from one, you know, borderline mania at some points. And it was a very weird of like, oh, this is what a mind that's not trying to kill me should feel like, like we're on the same team now. One of, one of the things that I, that I realized or saw, which was made me a, a true believer is it kept benefiting me in ways I didn't expect to where I'd be in the same situations in the past, you know, I'd go back to Tampa to, to visit people and these other situations, like just hanging out at a bar uh, to meet up with a friend where being in that social context would just give me extreme anxiety and I would just have to drink just to even like have that calm down the hypervigilance, calm down the anxiety. And I'd be in that same situation and I didn't have that stimulation. I felt perfectly calm and it, it took me a while. I was like, oh, there's something missing. And I realized it was that anxiety. The, the during, it was all out. It was, it was pretty chaotic. I had a very, it went from no psychedelic experience to one of the more intense ones. And it was just my brain vying for control versus this substance that <laughs> was not going to let it win. And so I just had to like, again, hit my head against this wall until I realized, which is a lesson of psychedelics, to let go and to let the stuff come up. Actually allow yourself to, to, to process through the trauma and that's why we think psychedelics on a, on a grander scale are work so well, especially for, for veterans. We, we're so good at compartmentalizing trauma or so good at compartmentalizing things. We don't have the tools to to express it or to pass it through, whereas psychedelics bring it to the surface in a way that you you tend to be able to see it and view it from a different lens, then also purge it, uh, which is a common practice with ayahuasca particularly. John, this area of using psychedelics to treat mental disorders is kind of a hot area in medicine at the moment. But can you outline for us the state of the research there? You know, how solid is the evidence that this is a thing that works? How big are the studies? Or is it more a question that it's a hunch and the change of law in Oregon will allow more research into this area? It's more than a hunch. There have been a number of studies, an increasing number of studies. Now, some of them are fairly small. And some people think that participants have been influenced by expectation, that is, they expect to feel good, and therefore they do feel good. But there's also been some really in-depth, crunchy studies on what they do to the brain, how they act on the brain. What they seem to do is act on a neural network that integrates perception and prediction, right? And this is sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, this is the self, what you see, how you make sense of what you see based on your past experiences. This is sort of who you are. And what psychedelics do is they radically reduce neural activity in that network, which is why people report under the influence feeling a decreased sense of ego, a loss of ego, and an increased sense of, of connectivity with the rest of the world, with everything else. They also seem to promote the creation of new neural networks, particularly in areas that get eroded when people have depression or anxiety. I thought you, you know, Jesse Gould mentioned being stuck in a mental health bubble. And I think that's, that's such an eloquent way of describing the experience of being in a depressive state or in an anxiety attack. You just sort of can't see out of yourself. So 
what they do in effect, I guess you can think of it as they let people sort of reset the narrative of who they are. And that seems to be why they're especially effective for addiction, for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD. All of these are conditions in which people get stuck in sort of damaging and recursive thought loops. And psychedelics seem to offer people a chance to break out of those and reset sort of who they think they are. I think that's all fascinating, John Fassman. And I have to say before I launch into a discussion on this that I'm like the Nancy Reagan of drugs. So I'm particularly ill qualified to be talking about this. But I am a former healthcare writer. And one of the things, of course, that people will know is that when you're trying to test any new treatment, it goes through different phases. So there are initially very small studies that might be done in a petri dish or in mice. Then they advance into different phases until you get larger and, and, and larger patient populations. And so far, all the studies on this have been really small. It's worth noting. And just because something has been used for hundreds of years in different cultures doesn't necessarily mean that it provides any medical benefit. But there are really interesting data that are emerging. There was a study that was published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the top medical journals in the world that had 59 patients, so not that big, but there was a trial that showed that psilocybin had a more powerful effect earlier than the drug that's commonly known as Lexapro, which is a a very common antidepressant. By the end of the six weeks, it seemed like the effect was about the same. But the fact that it was more effective earlier, and then in the end, just as effective as Lexapro, a multi-billion dollar drug, is pretty interesting and suggests that this is worth studying. I think all three of us are pretty Nancy Reagan when it comes to these sorts of things, right? I, I'm intrinsically nervous about this because although I haven't been a healthcare correspondent, like Charlotte, I've spent a bit of time writing about mental health and mental illness for The Economist. I wrote a special report on that a few years ago. And as part of that reporting, spent quite a lot of time with people who had schizophrenia and people treating uh, early stage schizophrenia. And we don't understand particularly well what tips people over into having a psychotic break, but there is a whole theory that heavy marijuana use can be part of that. Psychedelics are a bit different, though, as John said. And also, I think even if you're on the cautious end of the spectrum, as I am, I think the argument that these drugs are better taken in clinics, in small doses, in a controlled environment where there are people who've been trained around than taken in people's houses in secret in doses that may be much larger than is needed and where the people taking the drugs don't really have any idea what's in them. So even if you're a bit cautious on this, like I am, I think there's a pretty good argument for Oregon's approach. Yeah, and you see that, of course, in other states, right? So and in other drugs, frankly. So in New York, they're opening up um, safe injection sites for drugs that are truly harmful for opioids to have people do this in a supervised manner. So if you take as assumption that people are going to do this anyway, the question is how they do it. And in this regard, because there is some compelling evidence by real scientists from the Imperial College of London and from Johns Hopkins that this might bring a true benefit to mental health, which is an area, frankly, where there has not been that much innovation. I mean, if you look at the drugs that have been rolled out, it's been pretty abysmal for a long time. SSRIs have all kinds of associated problems with them. So it's not surprising that you see researchers taking this up with interest. 
Okay, in a moment, we'll go back to a covert spy mission so outlandish that it sounds made up. It might not be suitable if you're listening with young children, so do skip ahead five minutes or so if you're worried about that. First, though, the usual reminder, if you want to access all of The Economist's journalism, then you need to subscribe. You'll also get our weekly US politics newsletter, which this week will have more on the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. And you'll get to read John Fasman's piece on Oregon and his leader, which, John, I thought the opening to your leader was spectacular. Could you read it? John, that's very kind. Here's the opening line. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees, marmalade skies and licensed professionals who may finally be able to help you overcome your treatment-resistant depression. I have to say that sounds extremely appealing to me. And I'm not even a Marmalade fan. If that doesn't make you want to subscribe to Economist, I don't know what will. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. In an apartment at the top of Telegraph Hill in San Francisco, men would sit with a cocktail in hand, peering into the adjoining room through a two-way mirror. A fridge was specially installed to keep the alcohol that would accompany this night watch cool. In a 1977 Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, two decades after all this began, Senator Ted Kennedy described the room the men were watching so intently. Rather elaborate decorations were added. French can-can dancers, floral pictures, drapery, three framed Toulouse-Lautrec posters, red bedroom curtains, and recording equipment. If this sounds like a brothel, that's because it was. And the recording equipment, disguised as electrical fittings, belie the apartment's ulterior purpose. The observant men were CIA agents carrying out Operation Midnight Climax. The agency hired female prostitutes to give their customers cocktails secretly laced with LSD and used the recording devices and two-way mirrors to note how the men behaved while in flagrante and during the pillow talk afterwards. Despite rumours that many of the agents involved rather enjoyed this particular assignment, availing themselves of the girls and drugs on offer, Operation Midnight Climax was not purely voyeuristic. This is the story of a 30-year search by US intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. In 1979, ABC made a documentary about it. We did quite a study of prostitutes and their behaviour. How do you take a woman who is willing to use her body to get money out of a guy to get him to talk about things which are much more important, like state secrets? And it was part of a larger secret CIA project, MKUltra, a human experiment to see if people could be brainwashed and controlled with drugs or hypnosis. The writer Tom O'Neill researched it when writing his recent book about the CIA in the 1960s, Chaos. Completely illegal on many counts. Number one, the CIA isn't allowed to operate domestically. It's against the charter. And they were doing this all in the United States. They were doing actually overseas as well, but mostly in the United States. Number two, they were breaking the Hippocratic Code, which was giving people drugs without their knowledge or consent, awareness or anything. Agents wanted to see how the combination of fornication and a mind-altering psychedelic like LSD would change men's behavior. It was something that made people much more um, susceptible 
And uh, in combination with hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, they thought that LSD could would allow them to program people to do things. It was probably the one drug that they were most kind of obsessed with, you know, and trying to use it to manipulate people's minds. Would they relax enough to open up to the prostitutes? And could this practice be replicated in the field to gather intel or turn informants? If the CIA ever found out, they didn't share the answer. We don't know too much about the specifics of any of this because all the records of it were destroyed. There's just like a minimal amount that were found in odd places. The San Francisco brothel and others in New York were closed by 1966 and remained a secret until the mid-1970s. Operation Midnight Climax sounds like a made-up ploy from a pulpy spy novel. But it really happened. And in the men who were spiked with LSD, it had real victims. The US government wasn't wrong to research how psychedelics worked and their potential uses, but it was done the wrong way, not in safe and controlled settings with willing and informed participants, like the scientific studies that have informed Oregon's law, but in a shabby CIA apartment with drunk agents ogling unsuspecting guinea pigs. Charlotte, reading about Operation Midnight Climax, it's not hard to see why there are quite so many conspiracy theories about the CIA doing wild things. They did do an awful lot, though, in fairness to the agency, by the time this became a big scandal in the 1970s, they had realised that it was a really, really bad and unethical thing to do and, and had shut it down. Sorry, how many years did it take for them to realise it was unethical? Yeah, that was quite a wild story. Um <laughs> One of the things I think about in relation to broader discussions about legalization of drugs is just how arbitrary the classification of what is legal and what is illegal are. And here I'm talking not about drugs like the FDA approved medicines, but drugs like marijuana or heroin and so forth. I mean, the idea that tobacco definitely kills you, right? Um, But it's legal. Uh, Alcohol is very dangerous. If you look at the data for who gets sent to hospital after having taken different drugs, first of all, it's amazing how old this data is. The the most recent data on LSD use is from 2011, um, so more than 10 years ago. But there were less than 5,000 emergency department visits related to LSD compared with over 450,000 for marijuana. That doesn't totally illuminate the picture, of course, because if marijuana is much more popular, then that will have more emergency department visits than a lesser used drug. But it does give you a bit of a sense of the risk that we're talking about here. The real thing that have scared people from LSD in the past are these anecdotal stories where you hear people doing really dangerous, harmful things, like jumping out of a car on LSD or jumping off a balcony. And those stories really are horrific. And one of the reasons why I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around psychedelics is because their effect is unpredictable. With other drugs, it's easier scientifically, frankly, to anticipate how someone will behave. Whereas with psychedelics, the effect really depends largely on the setting. I'm also interested in the classification of drugs and the way that they can swap from being you know, medical to recreational and back again. So it's interesting how you're seeing these drugs that people are likely going to be taking in places like Oregon that originated perhaps in medical settings developed by research chemists, though obviously psilocybin's been around for, for a lot longer as it occurs naturally in some substances. And then they're taken up by people as part of a kind of party culture or dance culture and they 
they're illegal, and then they come back 50 years later. Yes, psychedelics were the subject of serious medical research in the 1950s and early 60s, and then they got demonized for political reasons with Richard Nixon's war on drugs, right? He passed the Controlled Substances Act. They were classified as a Schedule One drug, which means they are habit-forming and have no legitimate medical use. That's clearly incorrect. And I would say with psychedelics, if they had cared to look at the research, they would have known was incorrect then. To my mind, what's encouraging about Oregon's new law isn't just that it will make psilocybin therapy available, although that's great. And this is true of the New York safe injection sites, too. It shows that voters and politicians seem to be well past the moral panic stage of American drug policy. They're willing to acknowledge, in the case of safe injection sites, that illegal drugs are something that people do and that what we want as a society is to have fewer people die from them. And so let's keep them safe. In the case of Oregon's decriminalization measure, it says much the same thing, right? That there's no reason to put people in jail for something they are doing to themselves. In the case of psilocybin therapy, it shows that people understand that even though a drug may have been classified as illegal at some point, for whatever reason, often political, that these drugs have genuine benefit. And if the people wish to avail themselves of it, that's really their own business. John, I was convinced by your leader and your piece this week, but I suppose the counter argument is that there's not a fixed supply of people who want to take drugs. If it were the case that, say, 10% of the population was always going to take illegal drugs, then you'd want to make it as safe as possible for those people to do so. But the argument is that it doesn't work like that, that actually, if you make these things more readily available, then more people will take them. And to many people, that's a scary thought. We'll be back in a moment to ask whether other states could follow Oregon's approach to psychedelics. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. John, who else have you been speaking to for your piece? The next person we're going to hear from is Dr. Mason Marks, who is a fellow of psychedelics law and regulation at Harvard Law School. And he sits on the board advising Oregon on the implementation of this new policy. Now, he is a supporter of Oregon's law, but I wanted to speak to him because he spends his time thinking about the best and safest ways to integrate psychedelics into existing mental health practices. So there is really a wave of legislative reform washing over the country right now. It started in Denver in 2019 when voters passed a ballot initiative to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms. And since then, the trend has spread to other states, um, initially on the West Coast, so California, Oregon, also Washington, D.C. Uh, we're even seeing uh, bills being proposed in states like Texas and Florida. Uh, and there are now at least 13 U.S. cities that have decriminalized certain psychedelics, which means that they have made the possession and use of the substances their lowest law enforcement priority. So they won't spend any funds or other resources on arresting or prosecuting people. And then there are at least a dozen states that have proposed legislation 
It typically falls into three different categories. Uh, there is the sort of supported adult use model, like the Oregon model that you mentioned. There's also more of a decriminalization approach, which is more like the this, this, uh, city approaches that I mentioned. And California's Senate Bill 519 really falls into that category. And then there are bills that are a little more conservative and they support research. Uh, and that the Texas bill falls into that category. Uh, so does a, uh, a bill proposed in Pennsylvania. So I wouldn't say that any one approach is better than the others. I think they can all uh, peacefully coexist. Psychedelics have tremendous benefits, but they can also be dangerous, especially for people who have certain physical or mental health conditions. How can you ensure patients know what they're getting into and that they're, and that they're safe? So that's true. These substances can cause uh, challenging experiences for people. I do think it's important to point out, though, some of the alleged contraindications are not very well established. So uh, some of that information is fairly speculative. You'll often see in the clinical trials that people with schizophrenia or personality disorders or bipolar disorder might be excluded from the trials. But I like to caution people not to read too much into that. A lot of times the researchers exclude people because they want to have a nice data set that they can publish in a journal. Some people actually believe that these substances might hold special promise for those populations, which actually don't have very many effective treatment options right now. So though it is very important to be cautious uh, and make sure that people with certain conditions are given as much information as possible, they're given support, uh, I wouldn't entirely rule out uh, the utility of these substances uh, for those people who lack many options. But the Oregon model that you mentioned, that is a uh, what I call a supported adult use model where people consume psilocybin uh, with the support of someone trained and licensed by the state. So that is a particularly good model for populations where um, there could be slightly elevated risk compared to the rest of the population. What would you like to see as, as the national model? Do you think that the supported use model is the best one? From your perspective, what best blends the scientific and moral concerns over these? I really think we can have all the different options simultaneously. I don't think the country is necessarily ready for that right now. But there's no reason legally or from a safety perspective that we can't have a highly medicalized version where doctors prescribe psychedelics in a controlled supportive setting, as well as a supported adult use model like Oregon's, or even eventually some variation of a retail model, which is uh, available in the Netherlands where people can purchase psilocybin and other psychedelics uh, over the counter. And the Dutch government a few years back did a study to try and estimate the risk to public health of psilocybin being available this way. And it, it found that there was a negligible risk, little or no risk to individuals or um, public safety. And that actually has uh, been borne out to some extent by the experiment in Denver. After two full years of decriminalization, uh, even city officials and some officials from the police department agree that there have been no significant impact uh, on uh, public safety. John, 
So far, we've mainly been talking about psychedelics being used to treat mental health disorders. But in the Netherlands, as Mason Marks referenced there, it's also possible just to go and take these drugs in a controlled setting just to see what the effect is on on your mind. Do you think that the Oregon model, which will allow people to do that, as well as allow people to um, be treated for particular disorders, you know, allow people to experiment on their own brains in a sense and, you know, explore some of the sort of self-dissolving effects of psychedelics that you began by talking about. Do you think the Oregon model is going to spread across America or do you think it'll be the case that as with so many areas of social policy, we'll get you know, one rule in the blue states and another rule in the red states? What, what do you think is going to happen from here? I suspect other states will be very cautious and they'll see how the Oregon model goes. They'll wait to see if there are any harm from it. I think initially you may see one rule in red states and one rule in blue states, but it's important to note that the changes in psychedelic law aren't only happening in blue states. Texas just passed a bill last year approving research into psychedelic potential. The University of Texas at Austin, their medical school, now has a psychedelic center. And this is because you had a bunch of veterans who told Rick Perry, the former governor, that it really helped them overcome their PTSD. So I wonder whether it will be as stark a red-blue split as, say, cannabis legalization is, because that's clearly a sort of recreational use model more conservative places will, will, will have a harder time with that. In the case of psychedelics, because they show such potential in treating mental health disorders, especially among veterans, I wonder whether you might see some sort of more libertarian Mountain West states start to make psychedelic therapy available. Maybe not in the same way Oregon does. In Oregon, anyone who believes they can benefit can access therapy. You may have other states that require you to have a diagnosis of PTSD or depression, but I wonder whether the shift will be slightly more sort of pointillist, you might say, than cannabis has. Isn't a discussion about the medical benefits of a particular drug just the starting point for broader legalization? I mean, when you think about marijuana legalization, it started as medical marijuana, right? It did. I think that's possible. I think there's probably some supporters of Oregon's model who would like to see psilocybin legalized for recreational use. But I also think that doesn't make Oregon's model bad policy. John, do you think the laws might change on a federal level when it comes to psychedelics? I mean, it's so interesting that you talk about PTSD. America has so many veterans, as you know, with PTSD left over from the 9-11 wars. And Jesse, who we heard from at the top of the show, you know, use psychedelics as part of his treatment. And of course, the, you know, the biggest agency for treating veterans is the VA, which is a, which is a federal agency. And you know, if it becomes established that psychedelics are one of the better ways to treat PTSD or some aspect of PTSD, it's kind of hard to see how the VA couldn't go down that route, right? But in order for that to happen, you'd have to change federal laws, or maybe it would be enough just to reclassify those drugs. Yeah, I, I suspect they'll be rescheduled. The FDA is is looking at approving MDMA for PTSD therapy, maybe even as early as next year. I would not be surprised to see psilocybin follow, in which case you would have those drugs available as treatments at VA hospitals. They may still be illegal federally, right? Things like, you know, it's, it's, it's legal to prescribe uh, Oxycontin for pain relief. That doesn't make it legal to take it recreationally. So you may start to see that sort of legal change as well. We haven't talked yet about mushrooms and microdosing, which has anecdotally become much more popular in cities in Silicon Valley, in New York. 
among sort of the liberal elite. What do you make of that trend, John Fasman? The data to support microdosing having any benefits doesn't exist. I came across a study in this in the course of my research that showed that people who microdosed reported equal levels of happiness and satisfaction when they were given tiny doses of psychedelics as when they were given tiny doses of placebos. So it's one of these things that people do and say it makes them feel happy in that sense, like it you know, people also eat chicken soup and say it makes them feel happy. I suspect the benefits of both are roughly equal. If you're curious about this whole area, I'd recommend an article written by our colleague Helen Joyce, one of my economist colleagues who went to the Netherlands and took psilocybin. What have you guys read on this subject that you found informative? Uh, I have Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, right next to me. I found it fantastic. It's a great, uh, it almost reads like a like a travel book inside his own brain. It's terrific. Yeah, I was really interested to hear about the anxiety that he had before some of these treatments, that he was very nervous about what might happen, that there might be some kind of inner crazy person that was released after taking these drugs, um, which isn't what occurred. But I was, I'm interested in the tension between um, people who are highly accomplished and want to take a drug that challenges their own ego and their, um, some of their, their ways of operating and the the acceptance of the reality that at some point they have to let go. I found that fascinating. Charlotte, given that you're curious about what it would be like to have your sense of ego melt away, it's quiz time. I will say that as is obvious in my quiz performance, I'm totally impervious to public shame, which helps explain a bit of my um, imperviousness to peer pressure. And your fondness for performing in musicals. Okay, here goes. (laughs) In the year 2000, The Economist ran a piece titled North Korea's Magic Mushrooms, It wasn't about the psychedelic kind, but a gift of 300 boxes of fungi given by the communist regime to its southern neighbour. The presidential resolute desk was a gift from Queen Victoria. Which president did she give it to? Harrison? Teddy Roosevelt? It was President Rutherford B. Hayes in 1880. It now sits in the Oval Office and has been used by every president since, except for Johnson, Nixon and Ford. I think Resolute was one of the Royal Navy ships that was involved in ending the uh, transatlantic slave trade. And so that was the significance of it. Question two. All of the following gifts were given to US presidents by foreign leaders, except for one. Can you tell me the odd one out? Here's the list. A puppy... Insurance in case of a crocodile attack, 25 DVDs, a Burberry coat, a rug with the portrait of the president and first lady on it, and 300 pounds of raw lamb. That's a good, I'm going to guess the, the rug. I think the insurance... You're both wrong. Those were actual gifts to American presidents. The odd one out was the DVDs, which were given as a gift by Barack Obama to Prime Minister Gordon Brown in 2009. The films were all American classics, thought to include Citizen Kane, The Godfather and E.T. But not compatible with British DVD players, right? (laughs) I didn't know that detail. I think you get a point for that, Charlotte, which makes you this week's winner. (laughs) Did you guys see that Neil Young is taking his songs off of Spotify? How do you feel about that? I I thought when I read that news, I thought it's a wonderful opportunity for Neil Young impersonator. Well, I've been inundated with requests from Spotify to do Harvest Moon parentheses Charlotte's version. (laughs) Um, I think you should grant those requests. I, I for one, would love to hear that. Me too. No, 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 no. That point will never come. 
lead to my immediate termination. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll leave you to work on that, Charlotte. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you, John, also for your terrific reporting this week. My pleasure. Thanks, John. Thank you also to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rolfast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.